listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all the latest mental health-related news, bringing you everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and helping you make sense of media reports about the latest research into the potential new treatments for mental illness and insights into its causes along the way, better educating the general public about mental health issues and trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources about mental health and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Well, uh, now that we've had Valentine's Day uh, just the other day, I still think uh, I found some interesting relationship-related articles and um, specifically related to couples, so very appropriate for the holiday that we just observed. First article says, Want to help your mate beat the blues? Show them the love. That makes sense, doesn't it? But let's get into specifics as to how you can do this. And I admit, ideally, this should have been something that we talked about before Valentine's Day, but... Yeah, you know, just because Valentine's Day has already passed, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't give your partner that extra attention the rest of the year, too. I'm sure they'll appreciate it, not just on February 14. Easing your partner's stress as they deal with depression, especially if they suffer from depression, can boost their mental health later. The more depressed your romantic partner may be, the more love you should give them, according to new University of Alberta research. Now, this is a very interesting and important topic. Um, It's not something that's talked about or researched a lot, but the fact that someone is depressed not only affects how they feel and function, it certainly can affect their interpersonal relationships, and especially uh, their intimate relationships. For the non-depressed partner, it can be tempting to pull back, but tough as it may be, helping your loved one stick it out through a bout of depression can help their future mental health. Efforts from a partner to help alleviate stress may prevent the development or worsening of mental health problems and, in fact, could help keep the relationship healthy. Stress takes a toll on physical and mental health as well as close relationships, so that support can help a person better cope with it. When we experience stress, especially high levels of stress, we are particularly vulnerable And perhaps that's why partner support in those times is so impactful and long-lasting. This study was published in the journal Developmental Psychology. And 
The study surveyed couples on their levels of depression, self-esteem, and mutual support. Researchers found that the support given when a mate was feeling stressed was linked to future feelings of self-worth and depression. For example, men's feelings of self-esteem got a boost from supporting a depressed partner. Giving to their partner made them feel better about themselves. For women, receiving support from their partner led to increased self-esteem and reduced depression in the future. The study also showed that women with higher self-esteem and men with fewer symptoms of depression received more support from their partners in times of stress. Those who have better mental health to start with may have the capacity to reach out for support when needed and are better able to manage stress on their own, but they are likely not the people who would benefit most from a partner's help. But giving support to a partner who needs it most can be difficult. When someone is depressed or has low self-worth, they may lash out. A partner offering support reaffirms feelings of depression and helplessness of the feeling that they have to pick up the slack. In the face of negative reaction, perhaps offer invisible support. Studies suggest offering support your partner may not even be aware of, but would still be a helpful gesture, like taking care of a sink full of dirty dishes they haven't seen yet. You can offer support, just don't draw attention to it. Other ways to help a partner struggling with feelings of sadness or self-doubt include lending an empathetic ear, sorry, empathetic ear, if they want to express themselves, and on a more practical level, handling the logistics of daily life by offering to take on tasks that aren't normally yours, such as planning meals or driving children to school. Yes, it cannot be easy to cope with your partner's depression, and I like the fact the article makes the point they may lash out. Not everyone who suffers from clinical depression is sad or crying and weepy. Some people with clinical depression are very irritable and indeed uh, may lash out. Uh, so it's important to keep in mind that your supporting your spouse who is depressed will make a difference in your relationship and make a positive difference for their mental health. And I like the practical suggestions uh, the invisible support. Uh, do something unexpected for them. Take a task away from them that they will appreciate. Uh, again, something good to think about all year round, not just on Valentine's Day. Now, here's another article that has to do with couples and uh, the mental health aspect <clears throat> of couple relationships. And it relates directly to current events. This article comes to us from the Washington Post. It was written by Stephen Stosny, S-C-O-S-N-Y, who is a couples therapist. And uh, 
I'll just uh, read you his article, Very Interesting Insights, that's called How to Combat What He Calls Headline Stress Disorder During the Aftermath of the Election. Okay, so uh, again, maybe it's uh, he who coined this term first, but again, uh, I've seen it out there uh, other places, the idea of headline stress disorder. Okay, so Mr. Stasny writes, As a couples therapist specializing in anger and resentment, I was overwhelmed with distress calls during the recent election cycle. The vitriol and pervasive negativity of the campaigns amplified by 24-hour news and social media created a level of stress and resentment that intruded into many people's intimate relationships. I even named it election stress disorder. So that's what he calls it. Um, the uh, title of the article mentioned headline stress disorder, but he's getting more specific, calling it election stress disorder. He goes on, Yet as bad as it seemed in those days, there was an end in sight, November 8. Alas, from November 9 onward, we're now having to cope with a kind of headline stress disorder. For many people, continual alerts from news sources, blogs, social media, and alternative facts feel like missile explosions in a siege without end. In my Washington area-based practice, women seem especially vulnerable to headline stress disorder. Many feel personally devalued, rejected, unseen, unheard, and unsafe. They report a sense of foreboding and mistrust about the future. They fear losing the right to control what happens to their own bodies. Their male partners are disappointed and angry by the news. There are a few President Trump supporters in the D.C. area. But don't feel the, con the same kind of personal betrayal, he means, as women do. Because they don't get it, the men have a hard time sharing the emotional burden, which makes their partners feel isolated. The shock and anger that followed the election threatens to give way, as shock and anger usually do, to anxiety or depression. The very thing that renders women particularly vulnerable to the aftershocks of this unprecedented election is also their greatest strength, the desire to connect, affiliate, nurture, grow, and protect. Well, regardless of what side of the aisle you favor, um, I think it cannot be denied that there have been very strong feelings elicited uh, since the campaign and also continuing since the election. And I do think that the headline stress disorder uh, is a valid construct. And <clears throat> while it isn't always the case in couples that the women are disappointed and upset and scared by the outcome, whereas the uh, men are going along and not really sure uh, what the problem is, uh, there certainly are very strong polarizing feelings and this has affected relationships. And uh, so I think that 
couples therapists are going to be seeing this more and more now, um, much as there have been family members and friends who have openly been in conflict since the election, uh, in, in going so far as to attack each other on social media, unfriend or unfollow each other on social media. Uh, so again, this really is just another manifestation of what has happened uh, with the political discourse in the country and how it has affected personal relationships and uh, definitely can have a very negative impact on the mental health of those who are not in agreement with uh, the new administration's policies and are frightened by them. Uh, so we'll have to see how this plays out as time goes on. Uh, we're not even a month into the new administration. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's podcast, this article got a lot of buzz. And when I saw it, I was quite concerned. It says that the Mediterranean diet is linked to a lower risk of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, otherwise known as ADHD. 
And again, just a reminder, we do not use the term ADD anymore. That is outdated, obsolete nomenclature. Uh, for many years now, it is all called ADHD, and then you specify either inattentive type, hyperactive type, or combined type, which has features of both inattentiveness and hyperactivity. Now, the reason I was concerned when I saw this article uh, is because, what, you're going to tell people that eating a certain way will prevent a disease or treat a disease. Um, my concern about that, you know, what, what, what's wrong with that? It sounds like a good thing, right? Well, my concern was that it would add to the stigmatization of a mental illness and the anti-psychiatry bias that exists, the anti-psychiatric medication bias that's out there. There are those who still do not understand and accept that ADHD is an illness. Uh, they deny decades of science that tells us it is an illness with very severe and disabling and life-threatening consequences at times and uh, simply state that it is a conspiracy among psychiatrists and drug companies to create an illness where there is none, just to dope kids up with strong drugs, that it represents aberrant parenting and or teaching. Uh, you know, all of this are very dangerous and ignorant lies, of course, but my concern is that an article like this touting a dietary uh, link to it would uh, add to those mistaken ideas. Because the facts are that brain imaging studies for many years now have shown that there is definitely something different about the brain of a kid with ADHD compared to those who do not have it. So it is a physical disease. It is a real illness. It is a brain disorder and not something that is attributable to a poor diet. Now, having said that, if eating a certain way could help alleviate the symptoms, of course, that would be nothing but a good thing, a great thing indeed. And just on the surface, before we even actually get into the article, it's not exactly a revelation that eating well will help you think more clearly uh, and, and improve your cognitive functions, including attention and concentration. Uh, that's hardly startling. Uh, we know that if you eat a heart-healthy, which is also a brain-healthy diet, uh, that is um, no f low in fat and sugar and high in whole grains and fresh fruits and vegetables and lean meats and fish, uh, we know that you have better cognitive functioning. All right, so with all that very long, drawn-out introduction, let's get into this article. Uh, it comes to us from the University of Barcelona, but dietary patterns of the Mediterranean diet can be related to a lower diagnosis of the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. The study was published in the journal Pediatrics, okay, one of a very, very prestigious journal. This is the first scientific work dealing with the relation between the Mediterranean diet and ADHD in children and adolescents. And it evokes that some unhealthy eating habits could play a role in the development of this psychiatric disorder. 
However, new researchers uh, are looking into establishing the causality between a nutrient-poor eating habit and ADHD. The um, ADHD belongs to the field of neurobiology. It is a neurobiological disorder. It affects around 3.4% of children and adolescents worldwide. It is one of the most common mental disorders among children and teenagers, and its consequences can persist well on into adulthood, if not lifelong. The main symptoms are hyperactivity, impulsiveness, and the attention deficit, which show more intensely in children of the same age who don't suffer from this illness. So far, the most efficient intervention for ADHD is a combination of psychological and pharmacological treatments with the intervention of an educational psychologist. The mechanisms that link a low-quality diet and ADHD are still unknown. Uh, I would like to point out here what we do know about ADHD and what causes it is that there's definitely a genetic component. Um, it is one disorder where you can just about track it through a family tree, especially on the male side, um, and it's been quite obvious for many years that there's a strong genetic component to it. Previous scientific studies have associated some dietary patterns, uh, such as diets with processed food and low in fruits and vegetables, with ADHD. However, it is known that an unbalanced dietary pattern can lead to deficiencies in essential nutrients such as iron, zinc, magnesium, omega-3 fatty acids for the cognitive and physical growth and they seem to play an essential role in the, in the etiology and in, in the, in causing ADHD. So the study looked at a total of 120 children and adolescents, evenly divided between 60 who had ADHD and 60 who did not. <clears throat> and the research doesn't establish a cause and effect relation between dietary patterns and ADHD, but it can help determining specific dietary strategies to improve the quality of life for both the affected parents and their families. That's the very key important point behind the splashy headline or the soundbite that mainstream media sources who report on this would not necessarily be so careful to state. That just because the research found a link between the Mediterranean diet and ADHD symptoms does not mean that there is a causal relationship. In other words, you, that you cannot come out and say, even based on this research, that uh, avoiding the healthy habits of a Mediterranean diet will increase the risk of ADHD. Nor can they say that adopting the Mediterranean diet will prevent it or treat it. Now, they go further and point out that the relation between an unhealthy diet and ADHD could also be an example of reverse causation. 
Researchers don't know if the kids suffer from ADHD due to an unhealthy diet or does the disorder make them eat in excess of fat and sugar to balance their impulsiveness or emotional distress? An excellent point. Uh, the researchers who did the study believe it is a vicious circle. That is, the impulsiveness of children with ADHD makes them eat unhealthily. Therefore, they don't eat the nutrients they need, and it all worsens their symptoms. Uh, you can think of this association uh, much as we do for heart disease, right? We know that the Mediterranean diet, an example of a heart-healthy diet, lowers your risk of cardiovascular disease, including heart attack or stroke. So if you look at it that way, it's not so startling that adopting this diet would also help your brain work better in, in terms of focus and concentration at any age. The Mediterranean diet, which is rich in fruits, vegetables, and healthy fats, provides most of the nutrients in the right proportion. And again, the new study doesn't state that the Mediterranean diet could be a protection factor against ADHD, but it indicates that children and adolescents need healthy diets. This is a moment when their bodies need the best nutrients to grow properly and to reach a healthy life during adulthood. And that really should be the most important take-home point of this research. The authors of the study believe more studies are needed to determine if a change in dietary habits toward a healthy diet, such as the Mediterranean one, could serve to reverse or improve ADHD symptoms. And that would be great, and I look forward to them doing it or someone doing it and see what they find. Now, you might say, well, so what's so terrible about that? All they're saying is uh, kids who eat a Mediterranean diet have fewer ADHD symptoms. So why is that so terrible? Why can that worsen or aggravate stigma? Well, if people take the message the way it came out, the way it was intended, that's fine. But again, there are those who have prejudices about psychiatric illnesses and treatments and diagnoses who will seize on this and say, you see, it isn't all about, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with these kids, they're just eating the wrong food. So uh, we'll see what happens. Um, reading about this article brought to mind some research that was done many years ago in the UK where they took food dyes out of kids' diets and they were able to document improvements in ADHD symptoms. Well, I think this shed some light on those results. Um, chances are, if you're taking food dyes out of their diet, um, they're going to be eating fresher food that is not processed. It stands to reason, right? In, so it's got no dyes in it. What's left? <laughs> Fresh fruits and vegetables, for example. So, uh, you know, was it really the dyes themselves that were causing the problems, or were just or was it just the fact that they had an unhealthy diet? They were eating a lot of, you know, processed foods or even junk foods that had those dyes. In any case, um, 
Take-home message, eat a healthy diet, won't cure or prevent ADHD, but it will certainly help, uh, much as eating a healthy diet helps lots of other health problems, uh, especially cardiovascular disease. All right, we're going to have more children's mental health updates when we come back from this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott, your host, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Let's continue with children's mental health issues, another article. Uh, This comes to us from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, Physically active children are less depressed. Uh, this shouldn't come as a surprise, right? We know exercise helps depression in adults. Uh, no surprise that it should help children as well. Previous studies have shown that adults and young people who are physically active have a, lo- have a lower risk of developing depression, but the same effect hasn't yet been studied until children, until this study. And the results from this new study are showing that children receive the same beneficial effect from being active. We're talking about moderate to vigorous physical activity that leaves kids sweaty or somewhat out of breath. Researchers followed hundreds of children over four years, 
to see if they could find a correlation between physical activity and symptoms of depression. Researchers examined just under 800 children when they were six years old and conducted follow-up examinations with about 700 of them when they were eight and 10 years old. Physical activity was measured with accelerometers, which served as a kind of advanced pedometer, and parents were interviewed about their children's mental health. Being active, getting sweaty and roughhousing offer more than just physical health benefits. They also protect against depression. The study findings were recently published in the February issue of the journal Pediatrics. The work was conducted as part of a multi-year study of child development and mental health. Physically active six and eight-year-olds showed fewer symptoms of depression when they were examined two years later. Physical activity thus seems to protect against the development of depression. This is important to know because it may suggest that physical activity can be used to prevent and treat depression already in childhood. The results should now be tested in randomized studies where researchers increase children's physical activity and examine whether those who participate in these measures have fewer symptoms of depression over time than those who do not participate. They also studied whether children who have symptoms of depression are less physically active over time, but they did not find that to be the case. Previous findings in adolescents and adults showed that sedentary lifestyles, like watching television and computer gaming, are associated with depression, but this study found no correlation between depression and a sedentary lifestyle. Very interesting. Depressive symptoms did not lead to greater inactivity, and neither did a sedentary lifestyle increase the risk of depression. Very interesting. I would have liked to. I like, would like to see that replicated. Um, you know, in a larger sample. I, I know they did look at several hundred kids, but that is rather surprising. Now, the message to parents and health professionals is facilitate physical activity, which means that children get a little sweaty and breathless. Try a bike ride or outdoor play. Limiting children's TV or screen time is not enough. Children need actual increased physical activity. Again, something we pretty much already knew. It's fairly obvious. It's fairly self-evident and intuitive. Uh, but uh, a little bit of science to back it up. Okay, now <clears throat> caregiver stress, I think, is a very, very important subject. And uh, more and more attention is being paid to it. And that's a good thing because it is a very serious problem. Uh, caregiver depression is uh, an issue that is being recognized more and more. And uh, there are caregiver support groups out there 
uh, to help caregivers. And we could be talking about caregivers of people who suffer from dementia uh, or, or just other chronic illness. But this particular article that we're going to be talking about is specific to caregivers of those who are terminally ill. Uh, and this comes to us, the research does, from the University of Missouri. Currently, more than 34 million people in the United States care for terminally ill loved ones. Very, very large number. But there are few resources available to help them navigate the challenges they encounter. The study found that nearly one quarter of caregivers were moderately or severely depressed and nearly one third had moderate or severe anxiety. Researchers recommend that health providers remember to treat the whole family, providing ongoing screening to family caregivers to identify early signs of depression and anxiety. While some sadness and worry are expected components of caring for a dying family member or loved one, clinical depression and anxiety shouldn't be. This is a population that is under immense stress and is not necessarily being acknowledged. Basic assessment tools should be used to help increase the likelihood of early detection and treatment of depression and anxiety in family caregivers. Researchers conducted depression and anxiety assessments with 395 family caregivers, and they found that 23% of them were moderately or severely depressed, and 33% of caregivers had moderate or severe anxiety. In addition, they identified several risk factors associated with depression and anxiety among caregivers. They found that younger caregivers were more likely to be depressed or anxious. They also found that caregivers who were married and caring for a family member with a diagnosis other than cancer, such as Alzheimer's disease, had higher levels of depression. Many of these simple assessments that were used in the study are not used in general practice because of the misconceived notion among health providers that the family caregivers are not their patients. Health providers usually are more focused on the terminally ill patient instead of the entire family. However, in many scenarios, it is a family disease. It's fair to say the provider has, in fact, two patients, the caregiver as well as the person who is terminally ill. The assessment tools for depression and anxiety are widely affordable and have the potential for improved clinical outcomes for family caregivers in need of additional support. Well, I definitely think the research does uh, a very good service for the sake of mental health of caregivers, pointing out that there is a lot of 
significant clinical anxiety and depression in this population. It is not being adequately assessed or treated, and the means to do so are readily available. Uh, I like the idea of suggesting, as they do, that a provider realize that they've got two patients on their hands, really, not just the terminally ill uh, patient that they're treating, but uh, their uh, patient's caregiver as well. And um, it definitely would be important to look at the mental health of the caregiver as they treat their terminally ill patient. This reminds me of efforts to push pediatricians to look at the mental health of mothers of newborns uh, to help screen for uh, postpartum depression. And uh, certainly a pediatrician is going to treat the mother, but they can still help to identify that um, as uh, the mother brings in their child for uh, you know the early life well child checkups. And so speaking of women's mental health having to do with postpartum depression, that segues nicely into the next article that I want to tell you about. And that is actually the next two articles having to do with maternal depression. The first one comes to us from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine and It's about how gestational diabetes or diabetes that develops as a consequence of pregnancy has been found to be something that increases the risk for postpartum depression in and of itself. Researchers found that gestational diabetes increases the risk of postpartum depression in first-time mothers. It's the largest study of its kind to date included more than 700,000 women. The results were published online in the journal Depression and Anxiety. The researchers also established that women with a history of depression are more than 20 times more likely to experience postpartum depression than mothers without a previous clinical diagnosis of depression. That's a very, very important point uh, and needs to be emphasized if a woman has a previous history of depression, they are especially vulnerable to having a postpartum episode. And they should not be discouraged from having children, but that should be taken into account in terms of the approach to treatment. Uh, For example, the decision to stay on medication uh, while conceiving a new child and bringing uh, a new child into the world. Now, most practitioners think of postpartum depression and gestational diabetes as these very, very isolated and distinct different conditions, but researchers are now starting to understand that they should be considered together. And while having diabetes increases postpartum depression risk for all women, for those women who've had a past history of depression, If they have a diabetes during their pregnancy, they're 70% more likely to develop postpartum depression. All right, we'll continue discussing this study and more after this next break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, 
but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. It's that time of year again. If you suffer from itchy eyes, sneezing, a constant runny nose, sinus headaches, or an increase in asthma symptoms, and you're tired of using allergy medicine, maybe it's time to stop putting a Band-Aid on the problem. Peachtree ENT Center believes in treating the problem instead of masking the symptom. We are pleased to offer an innovative alternative that can free you from this routine. Sublingual immunotherapy is a safe, easy, and effective way to treat allergies to food and environmental allergens for you and your family. Imagine placing drops under your tongue to treat allergies. No shots, no office visits with time off from work, and freedom from needing daily allergy medication. Just think next year... You can actually enjoy being outdoors. About an hour of your time is all it takes to change the quality of your life. Remember, Peace Street ENT Center is where patient care counts. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week for a full hour of all the best and latest information on how you can get the skills and equipment you need to protect the ones that you love. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about how gestational diabetes increases the risk for postpartum depression, especially among women with a previous history of depression. In addition to gestational diabetes, the researchers studied more than a dozen other risk factors, including pre-gestational diabetes, for association with postpartum depression in women with and without a history of depression. Among women with a previous history of depression, pre-gestational diabetes and mild preterm delivery increased risk. Uh, pre-gestational diabetes, in other words, having diabetes before getting pregnant, 
mild preterm delivery. In other words, not premature birth, but somewhat uh, earlier than full term. Uh, again, under both circumstances, that increased the risk for postpartum depression. Uh, a young age at pregnancy, um, instrument-assisted, such as forceps or cesarean section delivery, and moderate preterm delivery all increased the risk in women who had no history of depression. So really... Um, it's basically any complication that you can think of of pregnancy and delivery can increase the risk of postpartum depression. Studying the modifying effect of maternal depression on pre- and perinatal postpartum depression risk factors sheds new light on the relationship between diabetes and depression, showing that a history of depression modifies some of the risks associated with obstetric and perinatal factors suggests that there may be different causal pathways of postpartum depression in women with and without a history of depression. Postpartum depression can result in negative personal and child developmental outcomes and identifying previous depressive episodes as a risk factor for postpartum depression allows doctors to pursue earlier interventions. This was the largest population-based study to date to characterize postpartum depression in relation to depression history. The researchers used a nationwide Swedish medical birth register, which includes a wealth of information on all births in Sweden. Uh, these uh, Scandinavian countries with extensive uh, birth and death uh, records um, make it a great way to acquire a, a database uh, to, to do medical research. You just have um, a lot of numbers uh, to get good statistics and uh, derive conclusions. Unlike in the, in the past, when, uh, researchers in this study relied on clinical diagnoses of postpartum depression since symptom-based postpartum depression inventories have a tendency to overestimate the prevalence of the condition. Well, there you have it. So the important take-home message from here is that, again, something we already knew, if a woman has a previous history of depression, she is um, at greater risk of postpartum depression. And now we can add to those risk factors pre-gestational diabetes as well as gestational diabetes and uh, preterm delivery. Uh, even mild to moderate preterm delivery can be another risk factor. Okay, it just adds to all the information we already have that women need to be closely monitored for postpartum depression. Now, the next article goes into how maternal depression across the first years of life impacts children's neural basis of empathy. Okay, their neural developmental pathways are affected by maternal depression. So this drives home the point as to how important it is to uh, assess and treat postpartum depression to prevent neurodevelopmental 
neurodevelopmental consequences in the children. Exposure to early and chronic maternal depression, chronic meaning long-standing, markedly increases a child's susceptibility to psychopathology and social-emotional problems, including social withdrawal, poor emotion regulation, and reduced empathy to others. Since 15 to 18 percent of women in industrial societies and up to 30 percent in developing countries suffer from maternal depression, it is of clinical and public health concern to understand the effects of maternal depression on children's development. A study published in the January 2017 issue of the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry followed children of mothers with depression from birth to pre-adolescence and tested depression's impact on children's neural empathic response to others' distress. While previous studies have demonstrated the effects of maternal depression on children's limited response to others' pain, this new study is the first to examine this topic in a long-term sample of mother-child pairs followed from birth all the way up to age 11. This carefully selected sample of women with no additional diseases that would add to the risk of problems were repeatedly assessed for maternal depression across the first years of life of their child and it was the sample was utilized in order to compare children of mothers who were chronically depressed and children who were never exposed to any maternal psychopathology. 27 children of mothers with depression took part in the study as well as 45 controls. These are admittedly very small numbers, but again, it's not easy to accumulate large numbers of subjects when you're doing uh, research like this uh, with very narrow and specific parameters. Now, the children were home visited at age nine months and at age six years to examine mother-child interaction patterns and were invited to a magnetoencephalography session at age 11 uh, to evaluate their neural or brain reaction to pain in others. Now, the researchers were amazed to see that maternal depression in and of itself was related to differential neural processing of others' pain in 11-year-old children. They found that the neural reaction to pain in children of depressed mothers stops earlier than in controls in an area related to sociocognitive processing, so that children of depressed mothers seem to reduce mentalizing-related processing of others' pain, perhaps because of difficulty regulating the high arousal associated with observing distress in others. Maybe this needs some context. What exactly they're doing is they're 
doing some brain monitoring of these kids while they gauge their reaction to seeing others in pain or distress. And what they found was that kids who were exposed to a lot of maternal depression don't react as strongly in terms of empathy towards others' pain. Now, the researchers also found that the mother-child interaction patterns had a crucial role on this effect. When mother-child interactions were more synchronous, that is, the mother and child were better attuned to one another, and when mothers were less intrusive, children showed higher mentalizing-related processing in this crucial brain area. The researchers found it encouraging to see the role that mother-child interactions plays in the findings. Depressed mothers are repeatedly found to show less synchronous and more intrusive interactions with their children. So it might explain some of the differences found between children of depressed mothers and their peer controls in this study. If so, the findings highlight a point of entry where future interventions can focus their attention to help reduce the effects of maternal depression on children's psychosocial development. The main clinical question now becomes, what strategies are most effective to improve mother-child interaction patterns for depressed mothers and their offspring? Moreover, to help these mothers be more attuned and less intrusive, Will that be enough to enable resilience in the offspring? In addition, there are further scientific questions about the manner in which patterns of maternal care implement in the development of children's brain, endocrine systems, behavior, and relationships. To that end, the research team are studying how maternal depression and mother-child interactions are associated with children's stress hormones, behavioral empathy, hormones related to bond formation, and their neural reaction to affiliative cues. And there is a plan to study intervention strategies that focus on the mother-child interaction pattern, and it's hopeful that if successful, these strategies will improve mental health and social adjustment in children of mothers with depression. It would be interesting and promising if an intervention focused on synchronous mother-child interactions could also reduce the prevalence of psychopathology in the children of depressed mothers. And indeed, it makes inherent and intuitive sense that it could. Uh, So again, just more evidence that paying better attention to maternal depression, uh, not just in the postpartum, but beyond into early childhood and pre-adolescence, can improve mental health outcomes in children. And uh, again, the study says nothing about how to address maternal depression. It could be medication, could be psychotherapy, could be both. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information and found it interesting and informative. I certainly enjoyed bringing it to you, and I hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together again next time. But if not, 
then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and medical director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good morning.